are in the third part of a series on the two epistles to the Thessalonians. And from the very day that Jesus ascended into heaven, his followers have always lived in expectancy of that hope, in expectancy of his return. That impacts every day and every decision and every detail of all of our lives if we are doing this right. But the point of the epistles to the Thessalonians is that it can be hard to focus on that day when you're trying to get through this day, when you're trying to focus on the cares of life and all of the stuff that you have to do. So in these two letters, Paul's going to co correct a couple of misconceptions about the coming of the Lord. And uh, just as, uh, as important, he's going to teach us that the purpose of all the prophetic things in God's word is not just so we can speculate and try to figure it all out like a big puzzle, but it's so we can be motivated to be ready. So we've gone through a couple of chapters. In chapter 1, Paul commends the believers in Thessalonica for becoming followers of their leaders, imitators is the word he uses, imitators of their leaders and examples to all kinds of other churches and Christians. Uh, Paul believes firmly, he says it many times through his epistles, follow me as I follow Christ. That he is a pattern because he lives for Jesus, that anybody could do what he's doing and find Jesus and serve Jesus. And he ends chapter 1 by commending them for living in light of the end, expecting Jesus to return. No matter how bad it gets or how rough it is, remaining confident that God is going to deliver us from the wrath to come. And Paul calls this our patience of hope. And then in chapter 2, we talked about this last week, Paul defends his life and ministry. It seems a little odd in a book that's pointing forward, but Paul has to defend his life and ministry because he's under attack by the very enemies who drove him out of Thessalonica prematurely. And he expresses love and gratitude for these believers because although there are enemies who say evil, bad, wrong things about Paul, these people in Thessalonica, they still receive his preaching. They still submit to his apostolic authority. And Paul says very plainly that sometimes the devil gets his way temporarily. He says, Satan hindered my plans to return to Thessalonica. And sometimes the devil hinders us. Amen? Sometimes the devil, he gets his fingers in something. He, he, he gets twisting and turning and lying and cheating. And sometimes the devil can hinder us. But let me tell you something about the devil. He has temporary power. He's the prince and the power of the air. Jesus is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. So at best, Satan hinders temporarily. And so when Satan hindered Paul's plans to go back to Thessalonica and pastor these people... Paul wrote two letters, and these letters helped pastor these people. And 2,000 years later, we are studying those two letters, so take that, devil. It didn't work. In fact, it backfired. We got two great letters out of it that we're still studying 2,000 years later. And at the end of chapter 2, Paul looks ahead to the joy that he knows he's going to feel when he sees these people that he won to God in heaven. And he uses a term that he will use several times in these two letters, a parousia, and it's a visit by royalty. It was a literal term in, in that day, that if royalty was coming to town, it was parousia, it was a royal visit. He said, we got one better than that. The king of kings is gonna come back. That's our parousia. That's our royal person that's coming to visit. And that's why Paul and everybody he can possibly reach, he teaches them, you need to live your life in light of the end. Now, Paul was a pastor and he was a spiritual parent to these young believers, but he had been forced to leave Thessalonica. They literally chased him out of town. He would have died. They would have killed him if he'd have stayed. So now what are these believers supposed to do? He's already reviewed in this letter how the church was birthed, and now he's going to teach them something in chapter 3. How to be established as growing Christians and how to stand strong even when you're in the middle of adverse circumstances. Now, Paul misses these people. 
He loves these people. And so he starts chapter 3 like this. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, I couldn't take it any longer. We thought it good to be left at Athens alone. I stayed here in Athens. I couldn't come back. They're on the watch for me. They would kill me if I came back. But I sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. I sent Timothy in my stead and he's going to establish you and he's going to comfort you concerning your faith. Although Paul couldn't get to them, he did the very next best thing. He sent them a younger minister named Timothy who had been mentored by Paul. As a result of this younger minister being mentored by Paul, Timothy was just like him in many ways. Obviously, they had different giftings, different personalities, different strengths and weaknesses, but Timothy was like-minded. He was servant-hearted. He was totally submitted. He was sound in doctrine. He was strong in spirit, and he was apostolic in ministry. Paul could trust him, and the church could trust him. One of the great things about this particular local church is you have allowed us and you have received the idea of team ministry, that everything doesn't have to go through one mouth, one person, one pastor, one preacher, one voice. You've received a team of ministry that makes a church apostolically strong. And I will say about Pastor Jack and the rest of our team, I can trust them and you can trust them. I can have confidence in them and you can have confidence in them. Paul made discipling the next generation of ministers the central focus of his life and ministry. One third of your New Testament is either written to Timothy or from Paul and Timothy. Timothy is being mentored. He's in the background everywhere. He is a major player in all of Paul's ministry. If you look, here's how you tell. Look at 2 Corinthians, first verse. Philippians, the first verse. Colossians, the first verse. Philemon, the first verse. And look at both of these epistles and you will see Timothy mentioned. He's either with Paul and they're writing or it's first and second Timothy and Paul's writing to him. Paul believed in the next generation of ministers and saints. And God help us, we better believe in the next generation of ministers and pastors and evangelists and saints. We better because that's our future. And at this local church, we have a bright and brilliant future. We have an apostolic future that as long as Jesus delays his coming, we've got a strong future here at CCC because it's not built on one person. It's not built on one pastor. It's built on an apostolic group of saints and an apostolic group of leaders. It's a wonderful thing. In Philippians, here's how Paul described Timothy. He said, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you. This was a different church, a different situation. But Paul had such confidence in this younger man that he could send him in as a troubleshooter. He said that I may also be of good comfort when I know your state. Here's what he said about Timothy. I have no man like-minded. There's nobody that I trust more than Timothy who will naturally care for your state. Because here's what happens about a lot of other people. Sadly, even people that call themselves ministry. For all seek their own. They're all about position and perks and prominence. All seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ, but not Timothy. You know the proof of him that as a son with the father, he has served with me in the gospel. He took a subservient role if you will, and he served me, Paul said, and that's why I know I can trust him and you can trust him. Now, in this case, Tim Timothy is being sent to Thessalonica to establish the church. He's going to be there a while and to anchor these people to a foundation of faith, faith that will not be moved by the devil or by his attacks or by the afflictions 
of life. Paul said, I sent to know your faith. I'm sending Timothy because I want to know if you still believe it like I taught it to you. He said, I don't need to know all the details of all the troubles and all the battles and all the trials and all the disappointments you're going through. All I need to know is one thing. Have you still got your faith? Because if you still got your faith, the battles will look after themselves. If you still got your faith, you'll get through every trouble and trial, every temptation. You'll get through it all if you still have your faith. I don't need to know all the gory details. I just need to know, is your faith still strong? He said, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know, you all know, that we are appointed thereunto. Paul said, I got a few troubles of my own. I got people trying to kill me. I got people trying to throw me in jail. I've got people lying about me. I've got people persecuting me. I'm appointed to a few troubles of my own. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation. He said, I told you that if you're a Christian, that doesn't mean you get out a trouble-free card. You get out a trial-free card. You get out a depression-free card. You get out a difficulty-free card. No, if you're a Christian, you're going to have difficulties and troubles and life's going to happen to you like everybody else. He said, I told you before when I was with you you were going to suffer some tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know what he just said there is, told you so, that's what he means. He said, for this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I was concerned about you. I was starting to wonder about you. I hadn't heard what I needed to know. I sent to know your faith. I'm sending Timothy to check out whether you still got it like I know you had it, whether you still believe it like I know that you did, lest by some means the tempter might have tempted you and our labor there would be in vain. Paul said, I'm going to send somebody to check up on what happened there. Notice he says in verse 3 that no man should be moved by these afflictions. I don't want you to be moved by all the trouble that you face. That word moved literally means to wag the tail or to flatter. It's because Satan tells a believer, you, me, everybody, Satan tells a believer what we want to hear. He flatters us. He tells you what your flesh longs for. He told Eve, you will be like God. And he'll tell you, it'll be easier if you just do this. You know it's not the word of God, but the devil will tell you, it'll be easier for you if you just do that. He'll say, you will be happier if you just make that decision and you deserve to be happy. He'll say, you deserve to get that. You deserve to have that. The devil will tell you any lie that flatters your faith, flatters your, uh, yourself so he can steal your faith. This is why we need strong faith to believe the word of God even when it looks like the word of God is not working for me today. Have you ever felt like that? Really honest? You can be honest in Bible study or maybe you can't. I don't know. Sometimes it feels like the word isn't working. The word gives us promise and we're praying and we're being faithful and we're doing what God commanded and we're thinking like, anytime, Jesus. You can answer anytime. You can come through anytime. And it feels like the word maybe isn't working and that's when the devil, Paul knows, he's warning them. The devil can flatter you. He can, he can try to appeal to your flesh and flatter your ego and lead you astray and you can be moved because of these afflictions, you can be flattered away by the devil. Your flesh can be drawn away by the devil. He'll try to move you. But this is why we need strong faith. Faith is not a feeling, folks. Faith is the opposite of feeling. Your feelings can be in the dumpster 
and you can still have faith in God. Your life can be upside down, sideways and backwards. You can have opposition, persecution, frustration. You can have all kinds of stuff going on, but your faith is not dependent on how you feel today. Your faith is not dependent on what happened in your life this morning. Your faith is not dependent on who did what, said what this afternoon. My faith is in God and in his word, and I refuse to be moved or shaken away from my purpose. The writer of Hebrews said, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. You can believe God when you see nothing. You can believe God when it seems like he's doing nothing. You can be faithful to God when it seems like the word isn't working because faith is the evidence of things that you can't even see. We're crazy people here. We believe in an invisible God. He's just as real to us as stuff we can touch. We have faith in God. It is the evidence of things not seen. In 1 John, John the apostle writes, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. You can't be overcome by the world if you're a child of God and you're living a faithful life with God. He said, this is the victory that overcometh the world. Now to watch some people and to listen to some people, you would think that the victory that overcomes the world in their life is their feelings because they are on cloud 19 when they're feeling good. They are prophesying and praying, dancing and jumping. They are slinging saliva all over the inside of their mask. They are doing all kinds of wonderful stuff when they feel good. But if their feelings take a nosedive, all of a sudden they are Mrs. Grumpy Pants. All of a sudden... The world has caved in. The heavens have fallen. God isn't faithful. Jesus doesn't love me. Think I'll go eat some worms and leave the church. That's their attitude. They are living as though the victory that overcomes the world is their feelings. The victory that overcomes the world is not how you feel right now. The victory that overcomes the world is your faith in God. And your faith can be rock solid when your world is shaking and breaking and quaking. You can still have faith in God. Paul said it may be the most succinct. He said, we walk by faith, not by sight. I can't see it yet, but I believe in God. Haven't got it yet, but I believe in God. Haven't got my answer yet, but I still have faith in God. Paul said, that's why I'm sending Timothy to you. I need to check and see if you still got your faith because your faith is what's going to see you through. And thankfully, Timothy was able to send a good report back to Paul because these believers were standing strong in spite of persecution. They had not allowed the lies spread by Paul's enemies to affect their love and respect for him. And Paul was so grateful, so thankful, and so proud of them that he wrote them this letter. He said this in the next couple of verses. He said, but now when Timothy came from you unto us and he brought good tidings of your faith and your love, and he told us that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also desire to see you. You still love us. You haven't changed. You haven't bought all the lies that people are telling and critics and gossips and everybody. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. I'm in the middle of some trouble myself. I'm in the middle of trials myself, but when I saw you having faith in your trial, when I saw you having love in your trial, when I saw you rejoicing in your trial, guess what? It gave me strength to get through my trial. And brothers and sisters, that's what this is about. That's why we get together, because there are people in our church family that are going through unbelievable stuff, situations, 
emotions, turmoil, and all kinds of issues. There are people that are battling sickness and chronic pain. There are people that are going through all kinds of junk that life has thrown at them. But when I get here in the church and I glance around and I watch them raise their hand and I watch them worship God, it gives me strength to get through my trials one more day. Paul said, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Paul said, knowing that your faith is alive, that's what's keeping me alive. Knowing that your joy in the Lord is alive, that's what's keeping me alive. Paul commended them. He's so proud of these believers. Now, what in the world had Timothy done while he was there that kept this church on track? What in the world had Timothy done, this younger minister, to establish these believers? I'll tell you what he did, because he did it everywhere. He taught them the word of God, a working knowledge. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be a degreed professional. You don't have to have some kind of high education. You don't have to have years of study. You certainly don't have to be a Hebrew and Greek linguist. But you need a working knowledge of the Bible if you're going to grow spiritually. What does that mean? That means you apply yourself to the Scripture. You may not be able to read a whole bunch, but you can read something and you can ask God for revelation and you can ask questions and you can look up stuff and you need a working knowledge of the Bible. You need to know the difference between the Old and the New Testament and why that's important. You need to be able to find the plan of salvation you need to know a little bit about the Holy Ghost. You need to read some verses about prayer once in a while. You need to soak yourself in the Psalms and let those songs of worship and praise and prayer ascend out of your spirit like they ascended out of David's spirit. You need that because God's word, the Bible tells us it is food that nourishes us. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The Bible is light to guide us. Your word, it's a lamp unto my feet. It's a light unto my path, and it is a weapon that defends us. So you need a relationship with your Bible. In fact, one of the very last things, not in the letter to the Thessalonians, but one of the very last things Paul would ever write to Timothy was some pastoral advice about the purpose and the power of the scripture. You know this verse. It's in the last letter Paul would ever write. And of course, it's to Timothy. He said, all scripture. Somebody say all scripture. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable. And we've covered this before, so I'll move quickly. It is profitable for four things. Your Bible is profitable for four things in your life. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. As you read your Bible, you're looking for one or more of those four things to happen to you. Doctrine, reproof, correction, or instruction in righteousness. Now, if we diagram that in a little chart, it would look like this. That the Word of God is supposed to influence what you believe and how you behave. There's a lot of people that they want the Word of God to influence what they believe, but the Word of God wants to influence what you believe and how you behave. And so, under the belief column, here's what we've got. Everybody say doctrine. Doctrine. What's doctrine? Doctrine is what you believe. Doctrine is the teaching of Scripture. But you've also got this. Everybody say reproof. Reproof is what not to believe. There's a lot of lies floating around today. There's a lot of false teaching floating around today. And so the Word of God is not just profitable for doctrine to tell you what to believe, but it's profitable for reproof to tell you what not to believe. And so as you're reading the Word of God and praying over it, you, you need to be on the lookout like a little detective looking for what to believe and what the Word of God tells you not to believe. But then, if you continue on in what Paul wrote to Timothy, on the behavior side, the Word gives us correction. Everyone say correction. Now, if you're a parent 
or if you've ever been a child, you know what correction is. How many are parents? How many have ever been children? So you know what correction is. Correction is how not to behave. That's correction. The Word of God will tell you don't behave like that. Don't act like that. Don't talk like that. Don't involve yourself in that. But it also gives us instruction in righteousness, which is the positive spin. That's how to behave. And the Bible teaches us all of that. Somebody put this in a little different format, and I like this just as well. Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. They said, well, what the Bible's teaching us is doctrine, what is right, reproof, what is not right, correction, how to get right, and instruction in righteousness, how to stay right. That's pretty good. That's what you're looking for when you read your Bible. That's what you're looking for. You don't have to know uh, all the, the big theological things. You just need to let the Word of God speak to you. If you read one verse and go to prayer and let God give you one concept for that day, that's very valuable to you. And the Word will teach you what is right, what is not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. Isn't that right? Paul continues in verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. Paul said, what kind of thanks could I give to God for knowing people like you that love him and love his cause and love his word and love their pastor. He said, what thanks could I render to God again? He said, so here's what I do. I couldn't give God enough thanks for the privilege of letting me be part of his church and letting me lead a group of people like the people in Thessalonica. I couldn't give God enough thanks for the joy you've brought to me. So here's what I do for you. Night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect, mature, complete Fulfill that we might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now, God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm praying that, that God directs our way unto you. I'm praying that God opens a door so I can come back and see you face to face. Paul said, what thanks could I render? That, that's an accounting term, render, to pay back something owed. Paul said, I owe God a whole lot. Jesus has been good to me. I owe God so much that he allowed me, little old me, to be part of his church. What thanks could I pay back to God for all that I owe him? How could I possibly thank God for his many blessings? How could I possibly express enough thanks to God for all the other believers that he has put in my life? Oh my goodness, I feel like that every day, don't you? What kind of thanks could you give that would be enough to God for allowing us the privilege of being part of his church? What kind of thanks could you give to God? Well, I'll tell you what you can do. You can do what Paul did. You can pray for all of those believers that he put in your life. You may not be able to call every missionary's name. You might not be able to call a whole bunch of names from far away, but you can pray for the people that are in your church family. You can pray for the people that you do know. You can pray for the missionaries that you have met. You can pray for the pastors and evangelists and teachers that have come through our pulpit. You can pray for them. And when God quickens them to your spirit, that's thanks you can offer to God, that you would pray for his church that he blessed you to be part of. And specifically, Paul has one specific request that he prays all the time. He says, I pray night and day. He said, I'm praying that I can come back and see you. My stay in Thessalonica was so brief that I just want to come back and complete the job. I just want to come back and complete the teaching I was going to do so you can be perfect, perfected, mature in your faith. The old prophet Samuel, he said this, Moreover, as for me, I can't talk to you, about, I can't talk about you, I can't speak for you, but as for me, 
God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. God forbid that I would forget to pray for my brothers and sisters. God forbid that I would forget to pray for my local church. I know you got needs and requests and wants and desires. I know you got setbacks and troubles and problems, but do you know what? You're very blessed. You get to live in a beautiful free country. You get to be part of the 21st century with all the perks and conveniences that we have. And you get to be an apostolic living for Jesus in the years just prior to his glorious return. And you get to be part of his church. No local church is perfect. We've got human beings in that church. But the local church is gloriously redeemed. Although we're not perfect in our humanity, we are redeemed by God out of sin and we are filled with his spirit and we are washed. Our failures, our weaknesses and faults are washed in his blood and we are headed to heaven together and the devil may huff and puff and threaten. He may brag and boast, but the devil can't do anything that would trump the blood of Jesus. He can't do anything that would overcome the word of God. So we're going to heaven because we're going to stay in God. God's church and there's nothing hell can do about it. We're blessed. We are blessed people. We forget everything in this world, every commercial, every advertisement, almost every conversation, the devil gets behind it and it's somebody else talking, but it's his voice. Everything the devil throws at you is meant to make you discontent with your life, discontent with your bank account, discontent with your job, discontent with your house or your car, discontent with everything. But do you know what? The Lord has blessed us and we've got more than most people in this world. But better than that, we've got an eternal inheritance if we don't own anything here. We are blessed. This is a church. Paul said, you're blessed. I'm praying for you. I love you. This is a church that has already experienced persecution. But notice that Paul doesn't pray primarily for their protection. It's not that it would be wrong to pray for their protection. But he prays for something else. Here's what he prays. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. Paul could pray for protection for them. It wouldn't be wrong to pray for protection for them. But he said, I got a better prayer request than that. I'm praying for the love of God to increase in you. I'm praying that you would have this overabounding, overflowing love for each other in the church and that that love would also flow out of you beyond the church to those outside. And then he says, and I'm praying for this too, to the end that God may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, he uses that word again, parousia, the coming of royalty, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. I'm praying for you that when that day comes, you won't be uh, left behind. You won't be ridden with guilt and shame. You won't stand before God humiliated because you didn't do this right. I'm praying for you that on that day you will stand before God, a grateful, humble, and holy people, unblameable in holiness before God at his coming. In the Roman Empire, immorality, sensuality, overt sexuality, perversion was a way of life. The citizens of the Roman Empire 
because they enslaved so many people to do their labor, the citizens of the Roman Empire had unlimited leisure time to indulge their flesh in all the sinful pleasures they could imagine. It was a perverted, perverse, addicted, bound, sensual culture. And the apostolic message of holy, godly living was new to that culture. They'd never heard of the like. And it wasn't always easy for these new believers to fight all the temptations around them. You know what? It's still not easy to live for God and fight temptation when you live in the middle of a sin-sick, sensual, sex-addicted, perverted, addicted culture. And that's why holiness is part of Paul's night and day prayer for them. I'm praying that you'll live a holy life in the middle of a perverted culture. I'm praying that you'll maintain your separation from the world because it puts a wall around you and a fence between you and the devil. He said, I'm praying that you will abound more and more in holiness. I'm praying that you'll follow the teaching I gave you and you'll pray and, and you'll please God in your life. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren. I beg you, I'm asking you strongly, and I exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as you received of us how you ought to walk and to please God. I taught you, I told you, this is what you need to do to please Jesus. I'm praying that you would abound more and more. That holiness, that separation, that godliness, that righteousness wouldn't be a relic of a few old timers in our history, but it would be a current reality in your life as you live in a sinful world. I'm praying that that would abound more and more because you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. I taught you what Jesus had taught me by revelation. One of the temptations that was so common back then and still today, one of the temptations that was so devastating was in the area of sexual immorality. Because in the Roman world, everybody did whatever felt good, never mind the horrible consequences. But Paul reminds these people that he loves that we have a clear commandment from God. He says, you want to know the will of God? Let me tell you the will of God. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. It's the will of God that you live a holy life. That you should abstain from fornication. That's a, a big term that covers any kind, every kind of sexual sin. Paul said, I'm praying and I'm working and I'm teaching and I'm exhorting you that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification, in holiness, and in honor. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. Paul reminds them, in the middle of the sinful, sensual culture that you live in, it is the will of God that his children abstain from fornication. All sexual activity outside of marriage is out of bounds for the child of God. When Paul says, possess his vessel, he literally says, you need to control your body. You need to take charge of your vessel. Take charge of your body. Don't let your flesh lead you into trouble, lead you into some activity that is going to rob you of what Jesus has put in your heart. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost and you need to know how to keep your body holy, separated, disciplined. Concupiscence, we don't use that word. Guarantee you never said that over supper. Concupiscence means uncontrolled desires. 
That was the driving force between, be, behind the Roman Empire and it eventually led to the fall of the Roman Empire. It was just uncontrolled desire. The desire for power, the desire for conquest, the desire for sensuality and sexuality. That was the driving force behind their culture. Uncontrolled desires. It is exactly the same tension that we feel today all around us. People with uncontrolled desires. If they're not doing it publicly, they're dabbling in it privately. If they don't have a public addiction that you can see, they have a private addiction that you might not see. Uncontrolled desires. Let me tell you something. Worldliness and holiness have always been at war with one another and worldliness and holiness will be at war till the moment of the rapture. So you might as well buckle your spiritual seatbelt and say, I'm picking sides. I refuse to be ensnared by worldliness. I refuse to let the passions of my flesh run amok uncontrolled. I decide that I am gonna be a separate vessel. I am going to submit myself to the commandments of God. And that's what Paul is telling them to do. Don't be like the Gentiles. The lust of concupiscence. The lust of uncontrolled desires. They don't know God. That's why they do that. You do know God. You need to be responsible. You need to be disciplined in your life. He says in verse 6 that no man Go beyond, in other words, that you would overstep the commandments of God, that you would break the commandments of God, that you would ignore the commandments of God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. Paul said, don't go beyond the commandments of God. Don't overstep the commandments of God because then you would be, and he's talking specifically about God's commands regarding sexuality. And he said, because if you go beyond God's commandments, you defraud your brother. You defraud means to take advantage of. What Paul is saying here is that sexual sin affects us more deeply than any other Sin. You know why? Because it involves another person. That's why. You're defrauding someone. And the Lord, Paul said, is the avenger. He is the punisher of all such sins. Now I know we preach the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God. And that's absolutely true. 1,000% fundamentally correct. Yes, you can be forgiven. But what you can't do is you cannot change God's law of the harvest. You can be forgiven, but the Bible says in Galatians, don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. We all know the sad tale of some young person that got messed up sexually, and there's a child as a result of that sin. There's a disease as a result of that sin. There's a lifetime of heartache and heartbreak. There's a marriage that maybe needed to happen, but everybody looks on and says, that's just going to be troubled forever. Yes, you can be forgiven of any sin, but you cannot change God's law of harvest. He that sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Yes, you can be forgiven, but sometimes you can't erase the consequences. Yes, you can be forgiven, but you cannot get back all the time you wasted in sin. You can't get it back. You have to crawl over that to get back to God. Thank God that he's merciful. Thank God that he forgives. Thank God that he restores. Thank God that the church reaches out and embraces anybody who comes back to God. We better because that could be us next time around. But the fact of the matter is, yes, you can be forgiven. But you can't ever get the memories out of your mind. And so Paul said, just take my warning 
and don't break God's commandments in the first place. Take warning. I forewarned you. I've testified to you. He says to the Corinthians, God has one word for sexual temptation, and it's run. Flee fornication. Flee sexual sin. The world's going to want you to run to it. The world's going to want to entice you over there. But the word for the apostolic church is run from sexual sin. Don't stand there and try to pretend how strong you are. Don't stand there like a clown and try to talk yourself into the fact, I can handle it. You can handle it. God said you couldn't handle it. So he has one word for you. Get yourself out of that temptation zone. Get yourself away from that relationship. Get yourself out of that neighborhood. Whatever you have to do, but run when sexual temptation is in your vicinity. Here's why. Paul says, every sin that a man does is outside of his body. We can have an argument and I can have a bad attitude and that sin's out here. It hangs in the memories of a conversation. But he that commits sexual sin, fornication, he's sinning against his own body. Tonight, right now, while we're in here, Pastor Matt is talking to our young people. They're in a series called Asking for a Friend, and they've submitted questions. And tonight he compiled a bunch of questions about relationships and sexuality. And that's, that's a loaded subject because we know that everybody's kind of on edge and a little tense. And you've got parents that are very concerned, you know, that they're talking about sex in our youth group tonight. And we honor that. And he sent out a note today advising parents, you know, if you want to keep your kids with you tonight, that's fine. So we're trying to do due diligence. But the fact is, when all their friends and every movie and all of their school chums and everybody else is talking nonstop about this, the apostolic church better raise their voice and warn some of our kids and try to build relationship with them and help them overcome this or we end up with a generation pretending to be Pentecostal while they are addicted to the same perversion that is in the world. God's not interested in your best performance on Sunday. He wants to get in you by the power of the Holy Ghost and give you the strength to live a separated life in a sinful culture. He said the people that commit sexual sin, they sin against their own body. Some of those precious young people, they dabble in that and they sin against their own body. Far too early, far too young, they open up thoughts and appetites that should never have been opened up in them. Far too early, they dabble in behaviors that they don't understand the risks and they don't understand the spiritual connections that are made that will trouble their good marriage later on. They don't understand. And so Paul said, you could do yourself a favor if you listen to your pastor and just run you do yourself a favor if you listen to me when I forewarn you and testify to you. You do yourself a favor if you just don't break God's commandments in the first place. Is it going to be hard? Brutally. Is it going to demand everything? Yes. Is it going to take huge amounts of discipline? Oh, yes. Are you going to have to get on your face and ask God for forgiveness and get back up again and try again? Are you going to have to really work at it? Oh, yes. But will it be worth it? Absolutely. Because on that day, God is going to present to himself a beautiful bride. And she is going to be arrayed in fine white linen, which is the righteousness of the saints. And whatever it costs you, you You've got to be there on that day in his bride. So it's worth it to fight. There has always been a war between worldliness and holiness. It has not stopped. It has intensified. You've got to pick sides. So many people today have issues when preachers teach about holiness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. They just get squirmy. They, they, they just hate that. They chafe at that. Some of them mock that and malign that and criticize that. 
It was the very same in Paul's day in the sensual Roman Empire. But Paul emphatically states, God has not called us unto uncleanness, but he has called us unto holiness. And if you despise the teaching of separation, if you despise the teaching about holiness, you're not despising man. You're not despising the pastor. You're not despising Paul. No, you're despising God because God gave you the Holy Spirit. Guess what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do in your life? It's supposed to make you a holy person. That's what it's supposed to do. While they are struggling in other areas and they're fighting a war against temptation and against trouble and trial, Paul is so proud of these believers because one of the great things they have going for them is they have a genuine love for each other. There are casualties of war from time to time. In a battle that's as intense and as eternal and as important as spiritual warfare. And every once in a while, one of our brothers and sisters falls. They fail. They backslide. They get cold. They become indifferent. Dear God in heaven, help us. That if and when that happens to anybody... You don't jump up on your high horse of judgment and want to excommunicate them from the church in an instant. Instead, you want to pray for them and you want to reach for them and you want to show the love of God. For them. Paul said, you may not have everything together, Thessalonica, but let me commend you for something. You have genuine love for one another. You see, there will be casualties in spiritual warfare. There will be people that make a foolish decision or take a wrong road or take us vacation from God but when that happens it's not our job to push them further into the world how idiotic do you think that would be our job is to reach and pray and love and try to retain them for the kingdom of God one soul is worth the entire world so you better bite your tongue and talk to Jesus about it instead of talking to everybody else about it Paul says, but it's touching brotherly love. <laughs> you don't even need me to write to you about that because you got that. You don't even need somebody to get up and say, you better have love because you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. He said, you got some issues that you're facing. You got some temptation you're going to have to war against. But one thing I can say about the people in Thessalonica is they genuinely love one another. God has taught them that his love covers a multitude of sins. His love restores. His love reaches. His love never gives up. And indeed, you do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. It's not just about your little local church. No, you show this love to everybody. But we beseech you, brethren, don't just take it easy. Don't just rest on your laurels now that you've got that. No, I beseech you that you increase more and more. The harder this gets, the more the devil fights, the more end time prophecy pushes against us, the more we're going to need the love of God for each other. But I got a question for you. How does the love of God, how does our love for each other increase more and more? How does God get his love in us for each other to increase more and more? You won't like the answer. He does it by putting us in circumstances where we experience difficulties and tensions with each other. This is why you should never pray for patience while you are driving in traffic. Because he will arrange it. And he teaches us more and more love for each other by allowing his own kids, his own people, his own church to be in situations where there's tension, there's trouble, there's difficulties. Those are not opportunities for you to throw up your hand and say, I knew it, just a bunch of hypocrites. 
That's an opportunity for you to dig in and grow. And when we do, just like in Thessalonica, that kind of love has a reach and an impact far beyond the local church. Oh my goodness. There are people that love you, you, from all over the world because you've given to missions and you help send a missionary or fund a crusade or build a Bible school or build a church and they're serving God today because of your love for the cause of God and they love you back because this is the family of God. That would be a really kind of neat, kind of little bit emotional, sappy, sentimental place to end. But one more verse. <laughs> Two more, actually. Just so we can really nail it down. We're in chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Paul said, just one more thing. I got some practical advice for you people in Thessalonica. Here's what I want you to do. If you're serious about living for God, if you're serious about being his church, if you're serious about surviving in all the attacks of the enemy against you, then here's a couple of suggestions. Nah, Paul doesn't give suggestions. Here's some commandments. I want you, number one, to study to be quiet. Number two, do your own business. Number three, Work with your own hands as we commanded you that you may walk honestly toward them that are without, outside of the church, unbelievers, and that you may have lack of nothing. Paul said, here's what you need to do if you want to thrive and survive in all of the tension and the attacks that the devil brings against the church. Number one, study to be quiet. That literally means... Make it your ambition. Make it your goal not to get involved in other people's affairs. Oh, that is good preaching. Make it your goal. Make it your life ambition to zip your lip. Don't get involved in other people's affairs, especially if you're in a prayer group. I'm just telling you this so we can pray about it. Grow up. You're just telling them because you're a gossip. That's why you're telling them. Study. Work at it. Make it your ambition to not get involved in other people's affairs. But, 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 just make it your ambition Study to be quiet. Why? Because it's a bad testimony when Christians cart gossip around town. That's why. It's a bad testimony. It's a bad testimony to new converts when they see two old sheep <laughs> standing off in the corner of the church foyer and they can tell that it's intense. That's a bad testimony. Secondly, do your own business. That means look after your financial obligations. Don't fail to pay your bills. Don't let it be said of you that you owe somebody money and you won't take their call. Look after your financial obligations. Why? Because it's a bad testimony when Christians do that. That's why. And number three, work with your own hands. That means get a job. <laughs> Dear goodness, we've got so many people that are wanting to coast. We've got so many people that are looking for the government relief. You'll get some relief if you'll get off your anatomy and go get a job. Don't clap. I don't need encouragement for that. I have to deal with Beverly when I get home. Don't clap. 
It encourages me too much. Stop relying on handouts and everybody else doing everything for you. Get a job. <laughs> oh, please do not clap. That's not good. Well, I'm an entrepreneur. You're only an entrepreneur if you make money. Other than that, you're a lazy, no good. I'm following my dreams. Yeah, your nightmares. Get a job. It's in the Bible. In fact, this is in the Bible. If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. So turn off your Netflix, put away the Doritos, and go get a job. Oh, I'm having fun tonight. I got to quit. Okay. Why? Because it's a bad testimony when Christians do that. That's why. See, Paul said, if you'll do this, if you will zip your lip, make it your ambition to never get involved in other people's business. If you will look after your financial obligations. And if you will go work, go get a job. Paul said, one of the benefits of doing these things is that you will have lack of nothing. You'll be able to provide for yourself and for your family. But there's another benefit of doing these things that has nothing to do with you. You see, the last thing we need in a culture that is looking for any excuse to criticize the church, the last thing we need is a bunch of Christians with a lousy testimony. That is the last thing we need. And that is the last thing they needed in Thessalonica. Paul said, we need to do these things because it will allow us to walk honestly toward them that are without, to those that are unbelievers, to those that are outside the church. He said, our lives need to be honest, open, transparent, authentic, before them, the people that aren't saved yet. It requires God's love and it requires spiritual wisdom to live in a sinful world. Our commission is have contact without contamination. That's our commission. Our commission is be different without being dismissive of people. Otherwise, we do more harm than good to the testimony of the church and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Colossians, Paul said, walk in wisdom toward them that are without. Walk in wisdom toward unbelievers, unsaved people. Redeem the time. And by the way, when you're interacting with anybody anywhere at any time, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer any man, every man. Let your speech be seasoned with salt. Let it be always with grace. Don't let it be said that you're some negative, bellyaching person. You're an apostolic Christian. Your speech should be seasoned with salt. It should be filled with the grace of God. You should be the most positive person at your workplace. You should have wonderful things to say to everybody else that works with you. You're a Christian. If we are truly living in light of the end, then we will be concerned about the impact of our lives on other people around us. Even though they may not serve God, even though they may disagree with us, even though they may hate Christians, even though their lifestyles are sinful, even though they might even persecute us, we still want our influence on unbelievers to be positive for the kingdom, not negative for the kingdom. It's a disgrace and a tragedy and a travesty when somebody in this city feels like you Hate them because they're a sinner or they have a sinful lifestyle. That's a travesty. If anybody should love somebody who has a sinful lifestyle, it's the people that have been set free from sin and we're free enough and grown up enough in God to love them despite their sin.
If we are truly living in light of the end, then we will choose to live the way we live, not because of rules or bondage, but because we are expecting Jesus to return at any moment. We want to be ready. We want to be living holy so we can be in his holy bride. And we want to take as many others to heaven with us as humanly possible. The coming of the Lord. Paul's word is parousia, a visit by royalty. The coming of the Lord could happen unexpectedly at any moment. And that's exactly what Paul's going to write about in the very next verse, which we will start with next week. I'm so honored to be able to teach you the scripture. And scripture to me is so powerful and so liberating, and so corrective, and instructive, and strengthening. And I hope you feel the same way, and I know that you do. Would you lift up your hands and your voice, and before we just kind of disconnect and head out the door, could you give God thanks for the strength of His Word? Sometimes it corrects us, sometimes it encourages us, sometimes it directs us, but the Word always has something for us, and I'm so grateful for the power of the Word. I am healed by the power of the Word. I am delivered by the power of the Word. I am set free by the power of the word. I'm so thankful for the word of God. And you know what else? I'm thankful for the people of God. So why don't you stand to your feet and why don't you lift your hands just one final time and would you thank God for the privilege of being part of a church family where we love each other and we're doing our best to live scripture and we're headed to heaven together. What a privilege it is to be part of the family of God. Oh, I thank you, Jesus, and I praise you. I thank you for your people. I thank you for your plan. I thank you for your power that is in our lives. I'm so grateful, Jesus. I'm so grateful, Jesus.